Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I'm joined today by co-host Yuri Hauswald at Goo Energy Labs. And this is a very special episode of the show. We are recording it live at Goo Energy headquarters in Berkeley, California, in front of about 100 people. So let's hear it. (laughs) Yeah. So Yuri, we have not been together for three years in person. I know. It feels good to get the band back together, for sure. The last time we did this, uh, some people were here for this. It was Katie Arnold, who wrote a book called Running Home. Welcome. Yeah, as we've already said, it feels really good to have the family, the Endurance family together and Mm -hmm. shine a light on your book and have this really important conversation tonight. So that's what we plan to do, right, Sarah? Yes, yes, because we once again have an author as our guest, Allison Mariella Desir, whose new book is called Running While Black. Allison is an activist and change maker. Allison is co-chair of the Running Industry Diversity Coalition and the founder of Harlem Run, a New York City-based running movement. She also kickstarted Run for All Women, which fundraises for social justice-focused nonprofits. In her work as a mental health advocate, Allison also started the Meaning Through Movement Tour, a speaking series featuring mental health experts and fitness professionals. In addition to all of this important work, Allison is also an endurance athlete sponsored by, among other brands, Goo. She is the mother of a young son. I am delighted to welcome Allison back to the Another Mother Runner podcast, and I'm so pleased Yuri and I get to have this conversation together with you, Allison. So thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to say thank you to everybody for showing up. I oftentimes don't even know where I am. I've been traveling so much, (laughs) but I appreciate you being here. (laughs) So I wanted to begin with a quote from Running While Black that will lead into a bit of a preamble. So here's a direct quote from Allison's book. Quote, I resented that white people didn't see the entitlement and privilege that comes with being white, and ultimately that the racial work of our nation falls on the shoulders of black people. So I want to acknowledge that both Sarah and I have benefited, right, from white privilege, uh, whether we want to admit it or not, that the history of white supremacy is at the root of this discussion, that Sarah and I still have much to learn when it comes to understanding the black experience in America. And this is a needed and very important conversation to be having so that we can make more spaces together that feel safe and empowering for everyone. So welcome, Allison. 
I'm just kind of blown away at the, uh, I guess maybe I bring that vibe, <laughs> but just <laughs> you, it's rare that you walk into a space and white men are talking about white supremacy. So I, <laughs> I, I I'm almost like blown away. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. I appreciate you saying that. Um, I, I want to share a, a, an anecdote from the first time we met that actually stuck with me. It was at the Atlanta Olympic qualifiers in 2020. And you were part of a panel with, I believe, and I'm going to pronounce her last name incorrectly, Sally Bergeson. Sally Bergeson. Yeah, yeah. who founded Wazelle. Mm. And you guys were talking about the fact that this is a very white male industry. Mm. And she basically said, F the idea that we need a chair at the table. We Mm. need to make our own table. Mm. And that jumped out at me and resonated with me. And so tonight, hopefully, we can highlight how we can make that other table uh, more equitable for folks. Absolutely. Yeah. So, oh, you're yes, first. Yes. Go. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so welcome, Allison. How has the book tour been going? It's been awesome. I am, I've been referring to it as a marathon. So I'm now like approaching mile 18. Wow. <laughs> where like you're feeling a little sluggish, right? <laughs> you're a little tired. You probably need some salt. Um, so that's where I'm at. But I still feel good about completing this marathon. It started a month ago mm. and I've traveled all over the country. And it's just such a great opportunity. You write this book and you hope people are going to engage with it. You hope people um, that it will resonate with people and actually seeing people meeting people has been just a real privilege. Mm, mm. So speaking of running and this marathon that you're on, (laughs) um, this date sort of marks your 10-year anniversary of doing your first marathon. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your running background. Mm. Yeah. So growing up, I was a short distance runner. I loved racing the boys at recess and I beat them every time. Um, I started off doing the 100 and the 200. If me and Alicia had been in school together. Oh, oh SmackDown. Yeah. Challenge. Oh. Challenge. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I would have kicked her ass. But um, <laughs> I, then I moved to the 400 and the 400 meter hurdles and I didn't start doing distance running until 2012 when I was going through a period of depression and I was it's almost hard for me to imagine that this was who I was because it's I was such a shell of myself very depressed just watching everyone live their best life on social media and I saw a black guy a friend of mine who was training for a marathon who in my eyes did not look like a marathon runner so I was really intrigued by what he was doing and he completed a marathon and watching him do that inspired me to sign up for the same one. So, you know, that just shows the importance of representation, right? Like mm-hmm. if I wouldn't have even paid attention to it if it had been just your average skinny white dude. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I get it. I would have said, oh, just another another white guy doing what they do. Um, but this person encouraged me to take that step and my life was forever changed. Mm. Mm. So I found your chapters on pregnancy, birth, Mm. and your postpartum period really poignant. So could you please share how your running identity and mission might have been affected after motherhood? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I thought that I was going to be one of those really cute moms who (laughs) was going to... We all think that, yeah. (laughs) yeah, Push or run a jogging stroller and like be totally unfazed and then come back and crush it. I'm going to keep my Alicia jokes to a minimum, but it's just... It's just it's like, it's just a joke so here. easy, um, but it's not about her. <laughs> um, yeah, so I thought it was going to be one of those moms, but pretty quickly, I um, every time I would get to a 
certain pace, I would bleed. And my doctors didn't mm. know whether I was losing the baby or whether there was something else. And after the third time, they were like, ma'am, please just stop running. Mm-hmm. So it was really difficult because the thing that had saved my life and that was literally giving me joy, I had to stop for my unborn child. And there was a lot of resentment there and confusion mm. and frustration. And then I ended up having an emergency C-section And as we all know, black women in this country have really high maternal health risks or maternal death rates. And so I was honestly scared that I was going to die in Mm. pregnancy. So Mm. I remember um, being rushed to get my C-section and pulling out my phone and just writing like a last will and testament to my husband. Oh my goodness. Wow. And then asking the doctor to not kill me, right? Like, please Mm. treat me like a white woman. Um, It's funny, but it's true. (laughs) So then, you know, finally I uh, got home and thought that things I would snap back, right? Mm. But my body was not on board with that. I also had really bad postpartum depression and anxiety. So just Mm. the idea of taking my child out of the house was terrifying. Even my husband holding my son was terrifying. So it took me a long time to get back to running. Mm. And I'm I'm still coming to terms with like, I will never be that other person who I was. Mm. Um, I don't have that same body. I don't have the same even perspective on life. So running is very different for me. I don't regret any of it. I just wish that we had more conversations about mm. what this process looks like for mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Because remind us how old your son is now. He is three years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and adorable. The, the cutest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to skip over uh, the question we had scripted, Sarah, because she sort of answered it about seeing your black friend training for a marathon and how that's inspired you to get back into running. So I'm going to jump to this next question because you have a very powerful but quiet way of showing U.S. history, Mm. right? U.S. running history Mm. versus black people's reality at the beginning of your book. And we know that so much of our history has been whitewashed, Mm. just one of the effects of white supremacy, particularly black people's involvement in the foundation of running. So I'm wondering if you can tell us in this room, because I would imagine most folks haven't heard this person's name before, who is Ted Corbett? And why is he so important to the historical narrative of running? I actually, I want to do a show of hands. And if you read my book, then you don't count. (laughs) Who has heard of Ted Corbett? Okay. That is so weak. (laughs) Given the size of this room and the fact that we are all athletes and Mm -hmm. love moving our bodies. So Ted Corbett was a member of the New York Pioneer Club. The New York Pioneer Club was founded in 1936 in Harlem, where all good things start. Um, (laughs) And um, it was started not just as a running organization, but really as a civil rights movement. Because at the same time, there were clubs like the New York Athletic Club that would not allow black. Jews to participate in their club. In 1942, the New York Athletic Club realized that there were Jewish people and Irish people who were running with them, and they decided to change their constitution to become the first integrated sports athletic league in the country. This is before Jackie Robinson, before the integration of baseball. So New York Pioneer Club was literally a pioneer in all that we value in in running, right? A space where everybody can show up. So Ted Corbett was one of the athletes. He competed in 1952 in the Olympics um, in the marathon distance. He went on to be the first president of New York Roadrunners. He is the person responsible for the course, the New York City Marathon course. It had been in Central Park for years, and then he offered the idea of a race that would go through all five boroughs, right? So that's just but a few of his accomplishments. Mm -hmm. But 
it's it never fails to amaze me. I go into these rooms and it's always one or two people that know who he is. And that's not uh, by accident, right? That's intentional. He's been removed from history. In fact, his accomplishments have actually been assigned to white people. And mm. that myth is, is you know, regurgitated. We mm. could talk about it later, but you actually closed your book mm. with a story about that, how you actually tried to tell the author mm. for the New York Times or whoever it was, like, yeah. no, 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 that's not the true story, but he still wrote it yeah. the mm. way that it had been whitewashed prior to that. Exactly. Mm. Mm. So continuing on with Ted Corbett in the book, when you give such rich detail about his contributions to running in the U.S., you include a few of his mantras, which Mm. such as I will be relaxed and free of all restrictions and I will run hard and enjoy the effort. So when I saw that made me wonder, do you have any mantras? Mm. Um, You know, one that came to me was this idea of find meaning on the run or meaning through movement. Just this idea that when I first started running, I was feeling very hopeless and detached, not just from my body, but from my commu- from my community. Mm-hmm. And through movement, I realized that I mattered and not just that I mattered, but my contributions also mattered. So, you know, I wouldn't say that there's like a mantra per se, but I always I'm fascinated by this idea of finding meaning through movement and mm-hmm. what that can how that serves my life. Mm hmm. For a lot of us, running involves the act itself and maybe training for a few races a year. Yet from your early days of your adult running, your running also involved a sense of mission mm. and building a community around running. I mean, can you talk about that? I mean, it's, it's like you're running with a heavier weight on your back than the rest mm-hmm. of us. Yeah. You know, I think this is just the kind of person that I am because in all of my pursuits, if, if I find something I love or something that excites me, I'm, I'm the kind of person that wants to share it with my community. And so the same is true with running. I signed up for the same marathon that I had seen my friend run. I ended up raising over $5,000 for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. So I realized that I was really good at getting people on board with things that I was passionate about. And um, when I completed the marathon, I realized that I wanted to share this with other black people. Like there were very few black people running the race. I had seen very few black people in my training program, but I knew that uh, certainly there had to be more of us and that that black people deserved to feel the transformative power of running. So I started Harlem Run, uh, which was then called, at first it was called Powdered Feet Run Club, which comes from a nickname my father gave me. Powdered Feet is a Haitian Creole saying, it describes somebody who's so active, you don't see them, just the footprints of where they've been in powder. So I thought, oh my God, this is such a cool name, but nobody knew what it meant. (laughs) And uh, it wasn't until I changed the name to Harlem Run that people who were Google searching like Harlem and running uh, found the group. But yeah, you know, I just knew that other people would love it if they showed up. It took six months for that to happen, mm-hmm. but it truly changed my life. One of those people who showed up is my now husband. Mm-hmm. All of my close friends have come through that running group. So yeah, just this this love of finding things and sharing and building community is something deeply important to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go off script just real. Mm, look to you. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm very meta real, to talk about that way. <laughs> <laughs> real quickly here to riff on that. Cause we spoke about this yeah. prior. Can you tell us about OG Krista? <laughs> yeah. So when I started Harlem Run, as I mentioned, my intent was to create a space for black people that centered us and our stories. And I was posting on social media. I was going to spots in the neighborhood with these really bad flyers. And then one day the first person shows up and she's this white woman. (laughs) And I'm like, why are you here? (laughs) But 
you know, she's 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 awesome. Like I'd say to her that she it wasn't until she showed up that I actually became a leader. Before that, I was just a person. Um, <laughs> but I, I nicknamed her the OG because there's irony there, right? Like she's the original gangster. She's the one who, who showed up. She's this white woman from uh, Massachusetts. But she's become a really great friend of mine. And she actually lives across the pond, as they say, and still supports everything that we do in Harlem. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so it was your experiences and work with team and training um, and experiences with other run groups in New York, some mm. friendlier than others, mm. right, that sort of informed the vibe you wanted to create with mm. Harlem Run. So I'm wondering if you could tell what was it that you learned for better or worse, from those other run groups that you wanted to infuse into the creation of Harlem Run? Because I think you have some really unique Mm. um, practices that you do at your runs. Yeah, you know, so when I was starting Harlem Run, as Yuri said, I was visiting other running groups and I, I didn't think of it as this then, but it was sort of like doing market research to see like <laughs> what groups were out there. Um, I knew that in my team and training experience, I had never felt a sense of belonging, right? I didn't, it wasn't like this active, like, don't come here, but it was just feeling invisible, uh, f- recognizing that people were making deep relationships and forming cliques, and I somehow was left out of the conversation. So I knew I didn't want that. But then going to other running groups, and there's this one running group in particular that everybody knows who they are, but I'm not going to say the name. (laughs) They work out very early in the morning. They scream curse words, take up all kinds of space, and often doing it in very public places like right in front of the mayor's house in New York, right? And so I remember seeing hundreds of white people screaming and carrying on and thinking, what if this were black people? What Mm. if black people were doing this at 6.30 in the Mm. morning in front of the mayor's house? Like, we'd all be in jail, right? Mm. So thinking about how freely white people can occupy space and how the rules don't apply to them. Then going to other groups where, you know, everybody, everybody's welcome. Just show up. We're going to be running really slowly today. 930 pace. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And then everybody takes off. And I was like, okay, I don't want that. Um, Going to another group and realizing that everybody was just like way cooler than I was. And, you know, we're talking about galleries and all this stuff that was like outside of my personality. But I was interested in but never felt like invited to the conversation. So I was taking notes on all these things. And some of the basic things that I came to was, okay, well, when people show up, there's going to be we're going to do introductions. So at first that looked like when there were 10 of us, we just went around in a circle, shared our name, answered the question of the day. Then when there were hundreds of us, it was look to the person next to you because I wanted to make sure that everybody who showed up knew that they were seen, right? Mm -hmm. And that they would leave. I remember this from school, like the first day of school, they're like, take somebody's number. They'll be your study buddy or whatever. Right. And you never want to call that person. And then one day you miss class and you're like, Oh, thank God I have that. (laughs) So yeah, that you left knowing somebody, I made sure that every run ended with um, a stretch routine. And it was this thing where like you would come the first time and feel kind of confused. But then the second time you would teach a new person that routine. Right. So all of these little things that I was building were a culture, right? I just sort of knew intuitively that whether you're intentionally building one or not, a culture is forming. And I wanted to make sure that mine was a culture of inclusion. Mm-hmm. Who's carrying on Harlem Run now that you live in Seattle? So we have a leadership team of 10 folks who uh, I've known for years now, and they are all they, they lead Harlem mm-hmm. Run. I'm still involved in projects like Harlem Run House, which is something we do over New York City Marathon. But it's really cool to help empower people to be leaders and take on something that you love. Right. Mm-hmm. I think the coolest thing is to be able to put people in positions of power and ownership 
mm-hmm. to continue my mission. Mm-hmm. And how often do they run together? Every Monday night, still mm-hmm. 7 still? p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and every second and third Thursday. Mm, okay. We'll continue our conversation with the guest after this break. Stay with us. All right. So after completing that first marathon down San Diego, you said this running taught me how to be embodied. Mm. Yes, to be embodied, to feel at home in myself. And you also wrote, when I finished my first marathon, I felt I had cracked the code of human existence, which I just loved. So how do you feel movement did that for you? Mm. Yeah, I had grown up being on sports teams and running But there was never really any conversation around the connection between your mental and physical health. And um, I'm curious, my son is three. I'm curious to see if this conversation is now something that's talked about. Mm -hmm. But I was just blown away by the fact that, for example, when I was if I was breathing a certain way, that was communicating to me how fast my body was moving. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I just didn't realize that your breath and your body were connected. (laughs) It seems really basic. Uh But but when you're walking, I mean, I don't think you normally think about that stuff until Mm -hmm. you get engaged into, Mm -hmm. you know, harder movement and or things like that. As you're moving, you can process information differently. I Mm. I found myself coming up with all of these great ideas Mm -hmm. or I found myself the physical act of doing something that I had never done before would then later inspire me to try that in a work setting. Mm -hmm. And I was like, do people know this? (laughs) Did I just discover (laughs) there's the ego, right? But no, but I also, it also made me sad because I was like, wow, I've spent at that point, 28 years of my life, not understanding that this whole thing is connected Mm -hmm. and that there's very little you can control in life, but I I do have some control over my body. Mm -hmm. And that actually inspired me to go back to school and get my second master's in counseling psychology, because I really wanted to know what was going on. And what I learned is, uh, what I went on to learn was that being disembodied is is one of the most tragic Mm -hmm. things that can happen to you, right? Mm -hmm. You see it a lot in folks who've been abused Mm -hmm. or traumatized, right? And I learned just how important that connection is and that Mm -hmm. practice Mm -hmm. of embodiment is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So this may be a little bit of an uncomfortable question, but we've agreed that we're going to be comfortable with that tonight, having this conversation. So in your book, you say that white supremacy harms everyone. Mm. So I'm wondering if you can discuss that a bit further here. Mm-hmm. Well, that wasn't so hard. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, so I'll, I'll give some examples. Um, you know, white supremacy, the idea of divide and conquer is like a concept of white supremacy, right? This idea that you, you see it often when there are marginalized groups who instead of turning against white supremacy turn against each other, right? So you see this when the the Black Lives Matter movement or the Stop Asian Hate, right? And you see Asian, for example, Asian and black people turning against each other without recognizing that this is a symptom of a larger problem, right? You also see how capitalism is a project of white supremacy, right? This idea that we, somebody is always working harder than you, so you should be working, you know, hiking up prices, but not paying people their value to produce items, right? Or you could look at things like body image. Uh, In my book, I talk about how when I started running during the first five years, I had never seen a black person on the cover. And then the work of Alicia Montano and her colleagues in Keeping Track, they actually did a study that confirmed what what I felt. But these images of thin white women have also led to I mean, a whole host of body image issues for white women, right? This ideal actually doesn't suit 
anyone. But what we often do, but white supremacy has a really powerful way of, of hiding and disguising itself. And so we never really get to address the core issue. We address symptoms of it. Thank you for that answer. Mm -hmm. In your book, you have a very Bruce Lee-esque quote. Um, (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. What did I say? (laughs) (laughs) We can make a way out of no way. Mm. And you use that sort of in, you put it in historical context. So I'm wondering, in regards to Harlem, so I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you could share a little bit about that Mm -hmm. and maybe the historical context. Well, my black people in the room, we know that. We make a way out of no way, right? Yeah. (laughs) So that is something that, that we say about uh, about our strength, right? Our entire existence in this country, and I would say on a broader level in this world, has been making a way out of no way, has been given, has been having very limited resources, limited access, limited opportunity to be ourselves, and still, time and time again, creating all of the magic, <laughs> the best <laughs> music, the best food, marathons, right? Like you, you name it, black people have been at the forefront of it. And so when I talk about that in my book, um, that really is calling on my ancestors and my legacy. I, I also talk in my book about the Haitian Revolution, which is not arguably, it is the single most important event in the history of the world. And that is another example of making a way out of no way, right? So that's something that I'm very proud of as a black woman, that I have this history of people doing that. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. So this question's a little long. So early on in your book, you write, when I go for a run, I am stepping outside as a black body in a white world. So that assertion jumped to my mind as I read your very powerful chapter about your experience running the 2017 Boston Marathon. Mm. And that marathon holds such mythic allure for so many runners. And yet your experience in Boston sounded deeply unsettling, Mm. to put it mildly. Can you share a few details with us? And I strongly encourage everyone to read the chapter as well as your entire book Mm. um, for themselves, as it was really eye-opening for me as a white runner who's run Boston twice. Mm. You know, I was just in Detroit, Michigan, and one of the co-founders of We Run 313, he said, he was like, you know, for black people, Atlanta right now is sort of like the Mecca for us. And he was talking to this white guy and he was like, and for white people, it's Boston. (laughs) And he was like, but what white people, like black people, we know that Boston is just one of the most racist places in this country. And it always blows my mind because white people are like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Right. And this is, it's not up for debate. Like it's a fact, both historically and presently. Um, It's one of the most viscerally racist places. So That's the backdrop of this, right? Like knowing that, for example, segregation came from Boston, right? Mm. The idea of segregated streetcars that happened first in Boston, Mm. knowing the way that white parents in Boston fought tooth and nail against integration of schools, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the way that, you know, mostly lower middle class Irish folks have always seen black people as the enemy Mm -hmm. rather than, and that's to this day, right? Like white people living in poverty, poor white people often vote against their own interests because of how racist mm-hmm. they are, right? So all of that is Boston. Um, then on top of that, <laughs> so that, that's the backdrop. Uh, then on top of that, you have this race that takes you 26.2 miles out into these tiny, tiny towns mm-hmm. that if you're a marginalized person, the further you leave a city, the less safe mm-hmm. it becomes, right? Okay. And so you're running down these streets and I'm seeing drunk white men on the side cheering 
cheering for me, mm -hmm. right? Um, and in those situations, one minute they're cheering for you, the next minute they're calling you the N-word, right? Mm. And just the name itself, like it hardly is in Boston. How could you call yourself the Boston <laughs> Marathon, right? It, it intentionally <laughs> targets white areas, missing Jamaica Plains, Roxbury, right? All of the racially diverse neighborhoods. And then it's in Boston for like 0.2 miles, right? Mm -hmm. So I was just really taken aback by how how people champion it as a sign of making it and running mm -hmm. when running is supposed to be a place that's welcoming and mm -hmm. inviting, which is exactly contradictory to that. Right. Mm -hmm. If, mm -hmm. if the biggest event as a amateur runner is one that's exclusive, then what does that say about what we really value mm -hmm. in running? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in your, in your book, you write, Quote, running had shown me the link between our bodies and our minds, and I wanted to understand how it all worked, how we heal. You've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'm wondering if we can dive, you know, a little bit deeper into, you know, the fact that it's been scientifically proven, right, that mm -hmm. our mood follows action. And if you could maybe share a little bit more about your experience about how getting off that couch, right, mm -hmm. taking action helped you with your depression that you were dealing with at that mm -hmm. time in your life, because I'm sure most everyone in here has mm -hmm. had period down periods in their life. So if you could just share that with us. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I've said a bit already, but I think the most powerful thing about running for me is that it gave me or training for a marathon specifically is that it gave me sort of uh, a plan that I could use outside of running. Right. So when I signed up for this marathon, I was given a 16 week training plan and a guarantee that I was going to complete a marathon marathon. And I remember thinking like, I want to prove this guy wrong, right? <laughs> um, but I wanted to get better more than prove him wrong. Um, but the idea that you could take something very difficult, something that only 1% of the population actually ever accomplishes, break it up into small parts, and then achieve it, right? So I started thinking, wow, like, what are other things that I've found to be really impossible? Getting a job, feeling better about myself, right? Like all of these things that I thought were completely inaccessible, I realized, well, what if I take it day by day, right? What if I, um, I started blogging, I started looking into mental health programs, I went to, I started going to therapy, right? I started realizing that I could sort of um, make everything into a project in that I would give it the attention that it needed and put it on a deadline, right? It's a, and I actually say this in the book. Um, Dr. Phil is a weird guy, but he wrote, this, <laughs> he wrote this book that inspired me called Doing What Works, Doing What Matters. And in it, he said that if you want to change your life, you have to put it on project status, right? If you say that you're going to paint the garage someday, you're never going to paint it. But if you say like, all right, I'm going to buy the paint on Wednesday, Saturday from nine to five, I'm painting, my friends are coming over. You'll get the you'll get the garage painted. Right. And so I realized that's what I need to do. I need to take this idea of like training plan, breaking it down, putting my life on project status like this is the most important thing there is and apply that to other parts of my life. And then going to the program in men, uh, mental health counseling, it just blew me away. The thing the way that I started learning about each of my social identities and my privilege and um, not only how I felt about myself, but how the world saw me and that began to shift my perspective about who I, who I am. Yeah. So I think we can all recognize that black individuals face more hurdles to starting running than white people do. So for instance, care responsibilities mm. 
And so from reading your book, I know your care responsibilities involve more than just taking care of your son. Mm. So how do you feel race might intersect with the care dynamic? Mm. Yeah, I mean, so everything, um, we live intersectional lives, so everything is intersectional. And when you think about the way that socioeconomic status and race and gender intersect, what it often means is that we have these greater caregiving responsibilities and less resources or uh, less information about the resources that are available. So yeah, what that often looks like is whether it's uh, mothers or other caregivers don't have the time and the attention or they're not even their best selves, right? Like there are so many times that I'm just exhausted and running is something that I'm unable to do in that mindset. And I think there are often these invisible responsibilities that Mm -hmm. we have that are disproportionately allocated in Mm -hmm. populations. And those are some of the things that we just don't talk about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting when you, when your father was still living and having to take care of him during your training for your first marathon, how you kind of couldn't see how those pieces fit together. Exactly. So does anybody have a a parent who's had Alzheimer's or dementia, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not something that you ever want to see. So my father was just becoming, little by little, becoming a shell of himself. Mm-hmm. He was in diapers and I was changing him. He was no longer speaking English. And I was sharing those caregiving responsibilities with my mother. And it felt like this really unfair thing that was happening to me mm. because, you know, I was selfish like that. But, you know, unfortunately, that's the case. Like the cost of caring for my father, ultimately, when we put him you know, in, in a home was over $5,000 a month, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. completely inaccessible. My mom is in just a terrible financial state as a mm-hmm. result. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are just the choices that we have to make in this country because of capitalism, because of white supremacy, mm-hmm. right? We don't come from a culture of caring for people. We come from, uh, we, we're in a culture of, of the bottom line mm-hmm. and how do we take from people to make the most profit? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's let's shift to talking about writing. Writing takes practice, much like running does. And so Yuri and I are both curious about what the writing process is like for you. I mean, mm. do you write in fits and spurts? Do you sit and write for long periods of time? Do you set aside X hours a day that you write? You know, do you write better after you go running? I mean, I tried all the things you mentioned. <laughs> I kept waiting for to find the thing, mm. right? Like, oh, okay, that was too hard. That must not be my thing. Let me try this. And then I realized writing is just hard. <laughs> like there are, at least in my case, there are no conditions where it's going to be easy for me to write. So mm-hmm. I had to get over that feeling of, well, if I just do it in this way, then inspiration will strike. Um, but what I did find was that running is always delivers wisdom to me. Mm. So um, I often would write something, go out for a run, and then I would literally, like sentences would appear in my Mm. mind as Mm. I was running and I'd have to like record an audio message or run home to write them down. I also uh, had a lot of really great ideas as I was falling asleep, which is Mm, so annoying. Yeah, no doubt. (laughs) No doubt. Why wait till the end of the day? (laughs) So would you keep a like a dream journal? Yeah, but it's so like because then I'm moving and then my son wakes up, but then it's like this whole you know. So yes, um, and then the other thing that I learned is that at least in my case, like a book, like everything else, takes a team, right? Mm -hmm. Like my editor was really invested in the process, which is not always the case. Some editors just say like go off and do your thing and Mm -hmm. don't provide any support. Um, I went on a 
writing retreat with oh. Lauren Fleshman, among other women, and we got to share ideas. Oh, and right. and that was really powerful for me because I didn't realize, I, I sh- should have known, but like there are writing exercises you can do. And there, mm-hmm. you know, there's like a whole process to it. Just like you don't decide tomorrow you're just going to run a marathon sure. and figure it out on your own. So I was able, thankfully, I had people around me who were able to share that that mm-hmm. information with me. Mm, awesome. Awesome. So I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. You know, what are steps that we as individuals, you know, we in the industry, we in our communities here can do to take to make spaces that are more inclusive and welcoming? You know, in your book, you talk about decentering whiteness. Mm. How do we do this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think I'll answer that question, but I want to talk something that I'm really passionate about is around hiring and retention and the work of the Running Industry Diversity Coalition. One of our key charges is to lead the change on hiring and retention because something that I'm hearing a lot is that, well, we just don't have diverse, diverse people don't apply to our jobs and then they come and they leave, right? As if we're the problem, right? Rather than asking the question of what is it about my, the work environment that is hostile to marginalized people? Like what is it about this work environment that causes them to come and then not stay, right? And I think about there's 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 things that are that will take a long time to address, but then there's simple things like there are a lot of companies in places like Oregon that are refusing remote work. Mm-hmm. Oregon is one again, literally mm-hmm. has a history of mm-hmm. of not allowing black people to live in the state. Mm-hmm. It's what well, it was a too, sundown state too. Sundown towns, right? Sundown yeah. towns where black people had to leave before the sun went down, right? Mm-hmm. And so who the hell wants to work in Oregon, <laughs> right? So if you Yeah, but say, Nike's there. Well, all I'm the, kidding, I'm kidding. But all the shoe yeah. brands are there, right? Yeah. And I know people who are applying to these jobs, and once they find out that they don't allow remote work, they're not taking the job because they don't want to compromise their family and their life for a job, right? Another really easy fix is around um, salary, putting the salary in job descriptions. And it's finally, I think in the state of New York, it's finally law. But you think about in the state of California too? Oh, amazing, right? That's HR um, right there. Oh, so hey, yeah, she knows. <laughs> um, yeah, and you think about the gender wage gap, right? And this is not, this is something that uh, harms white women, that harms, you know, people of all genders. But the idea that so much of your job as it stands now is sharing what your salary history is, right? Well, if I already as a black woman make 56 cents to a white man's dollar, and then I put my previous salary, well, it's going to be half of what your previous salary mm-hmm. was. Therefore, you can offer me something that's mm-hmm. lower, right? So, and the thing about not sharing the salaries, it's like, we're going to find out. <laughs> right? If you hire me, I'm going to know what I'm getting paid. <laughs> and if you are so embarrassed to share that salary, then you should rethink what the salary is, mm-hmm. right? So these are some of the short-term solutions, but people are like so resistant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it says a lot about them and whether they really do want to have diverse work environments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as if the publication of Running While Black and your book tour isn't exciting and important enough, you are hosting a, as I understand, a four-hour series called Out and Back with Allison Mariella Desir that debuts on PBS stations on December 1st. Just (laughs) really, really thrilling. So please share some details with us. Yeah, so that came about as a complete surprise. So um, (laughs) actually, exactly two years ago, I was on a panel with Myrna Valerio who I love. Yeah. (laughs) Um, This woman, Sarah Menzies, and the hosts of the 
of the panel was Faith Briggs, who's an old friend of mine, an amazing filmmaker. She's doing really beautiful work with REI right now. Faith E. Briggs on Instagram. You should follow her. So I was on this panel and Sarah Menzies is the the woman who produced the film about Myrna. It's a film. Well, I won't give it away. Watch it. Really great film produced by REI. So did the panel. It was during the pandemic. Um, I thought nothing of it. Then a year later. So now one year ago, Sarah Menzies is out to me and she says, you know, I'm wondering if you ever wanted to host a TV show. And I'm like, that is the weirdest question. Uh, But actually, yes. (laughs) I dreamt of being a VJ on MTV. Oh, sweet. (laughs) You would have been good. You would have been good at it. So I'm like, yes, I would love to have a TV show. She's like, okay, brainstorm some concepts and get back to me. So I put together this concept um, of 10 episodes, each episode featuring a black, indigenous, or other person of color who's claiming or reclaiming space in the outdoors. And the idea came to me because when I moved to Seattle, I got there and I said, okay, well, where are all the black people? Mm -hmm. Like, I know it's not, they're not as many, but I know, I also know that there are folks here doing stuff. And so I wanted a show that would tell those stories. So I submit this idea, then like six months go by and I don't hear from her. So I'm like, wow, that was weird. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) I guess I'll just forget that. And she calls me back and she's like, okay, I just got funding and Mm -hmm. we're going to start filming in April. (laughs) (laughs) So... The past from April through September, I was able to film these 10 episodes. Each episode is is nine minutes, so it's not a full show, but it was just a, such an awesome opportunity of me saying yes to something I had never done before mm-hmm. and and that being hosting the show. But then on top of that, I'd never done fly fishing. I'd never done kayaking. Mm-hmm. I'd never mm-hmm. done um, rock climbing. And I'm featured in episodes doing all of those oh, things, which is really empowering because, again, something that black people say is black people don't do X, right? Or that's white people stuff. (laughs) And really, (laughs) white people, have you heard that before? Maybe not. Okay. We say that. Um, (laughs) uh, But what that comes from, you know, when you think about it is, is really historical trauma, right? We say black people don't do, black people don't swim. Well, because uh, there was a time in this country that public pools would sooner drain a pool than allow a black person Mm -hmm. to swim in it, right? National parks were segregated. Um, So all of these, these myths around what we don't do are really protecting us from, from things that were harmful to us. So that could Mm -hmm. end up with us being lynched, you know, Mm -hmm. harmed in other ways, but I get to do all of these amazing things and, and hopefully um, show folks everywhere that, you know, black people do all Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I have to ask, yeah, that was fantastic. So yeah, again, that debuts soon on December 1st. December 1st, it'll be on KCTS 9, which is the local PBS. But then the following day, it'll be available online globally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if and if people have memberships to NPR or PBS, then yeah. they can stream it on PBS.org. Exactly. Little known fact, I love doing <laughs> streaming. on. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Allison, I mean, how do you find enough hours in the day to mm. do everything you do? Well, <laughs> I actually was just talking to a friend of mine about how I'm uh, for 2023, I'm going to quit a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And I see that as a uh, practice in self-care. Mm-hmm. So I told you my nickname, Powdered Feet. So I, it's in my nature to do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But I'm recognizing that, you know, there are other things that I want to do more. Like I want to spend time with my son Mm -hmm. and I want to find ways to incorporate my son into my work, Mm. which means saying no to, to something. So, but it's difficult. I have a, my husband Amir is an amazing partner who is never 
intimidated by my shine or things that I'm doing. Uh, my mother's actually staying with me right now. I have lots of friends who love my son. But I do think I've reached that point where I'm like, I just want to relax a little. So mm -hmm. if you get a no from me in the future, <laughs> it's for my self-care. Mm. Well, I'm glad you said yes to this. Yes. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we could talk to you all evening, but thank you so much for this, Allison. Thank really you. Wonderful. This is so much fun. Yeah. Appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Registration for our Joy to the Run, our month-long free Keep You Moving program is now open, and this free program kicks off on December 1st, like Allison's out and back. Um, and it uh, features clever, spirited workouts, either running or walking and strength training. We have a private Facebook group, so great community support and encouragement, plus some amazingly cute merch. So sign up for this free, yes, free program by going to anothermotherrunner.com slash joy 2022 again that's another mother runner.com slash joy 2022 and our podcast today was produced in st paul minnesota by barry madour from fire on the bluff and um want to give a shout out to our local helper tajiana for being here so thank you <laughs>